My name is Donald Gordon. I've been a member of Westminster Presbyterian since 2008. Following the murder of George Floyd on May 25, 2020, the session of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Alexandria, Virginia, established the Therefore Project Committee to evaluate Westminster's past and present as a congregation concerning racial issues facing our country. Over the next eight months, the committee was formed, completed its work, and developed nine recommendations, which the session adopted in full on June 23, 2021. One of the recommendations called for the church to write a history of Westminster relative to race. This manuscript fulfills that recommendation. In chronicling Westminster's history as it relates to the civil rights movement, this research project endeavors to present as honest an interpretation of these events as possible, given the resources and information available. Some terms, such as Negro and colored, that are offensive relative to the standards and susceptibilities of 2023 are used here in specific quotations in order to reflect accurately the original source material. Some statements can be jarring and painful to read today, particularly given that they were spoken from the Westminster pulpit. Stylistic decisions regarding terminology around race and ethnicity, such as capitalizing black but not white, were made after consulting a careful review of academic research and current style guides undertaken by the Brookings Institution in 2020. Standards will no doubt continue to evolve as time passes, so the terms used here will inevitably appear dated by future readers. Emphases shown in quoted material match those in the original sources. This manuscript originally appeared on the Westminster website and will be published as a book in spring of 2023 with the title, Faith and Race, One Church's Response to the Civil Rights Movement. Quoting Dr. Cliff R. Johnson from Area of Concern, a sermon he delivered at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Alexandria on January 5, 1964. Quote, Dear God, please help us to recognize as Christians that every aspect of our nation's political life is our Christian concern, and that if our social order is to survive and improve, it is only as we as Christians dare to face the implication of its problems. And if this church is to be a true branch of the church of our Lord Jesus And if this church is to be a true branch of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, dear God, it must be as we determine and make it so. And finally, Heavenly Father, there's not any one of us bowing before thee, but who is aware that there are areas of our personal lives that deeply need to become matters of concern. Wilt thou help us, O God, to have the courage and the commitment to make them so. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. In 1939, two men, Samuel W. Tucker and Reverend Frederick W. Haverkamp, put into motion a series of events that would have a lasting impact on the city of Alexandria, Virginia. On August 21st of that year, Alexandria attorney Samuel Tucker led a group of five young black men in a peaceful sit-in at the Alexandria Library on Queen Street, an action that Tucker hoped would create a test case to challenge the library's racial segregation policy. Even though the five men were quietly reading books inside the library, they were escorted out of the library by police and arrested for disorderly conduct, charges that were later dismissed. In the aftermath of this action, the city hastily opened a separate but equal branch for Negroes only, stocked with used and cast-off books. Samuel Tucker refused the invitation to apply for a library card to the Robinson Library on White Street, now the Alexandria Black History Museum. It'd be another quarter century before blacks were allowed full access to the same public facilities in Alexandria as whites. Nevertheless, the library sit-in is one of the nation's earliest examples of how nonviolent protest became an effective tool 
against racial segregation. Also in the summer of 1939, the Potomac Presbytery secured funds from the sale of church property in Little Washington, Virginia, to build a new church on the expanding western edge of Alexandria. A northern Presbyterian pastor evangelist named Frederick Haverkamp was tapped to be the organizing minister of the new church. Haverkamp went door-to-door -door in the neighborhood, handing out flyers and talking to residents. The first services were held in December 1939 in a classroom at St. Agnes School. The worship was soon relocated to Haverkamp's home on Virginia Avenue. The following December, 38 charter members of Haverkamp's new congregation met at George Mason School to organize the church that they named Westminster. The first members were Baptists, Methodists, Congregationalists, in addition to Presbyterians, and they transferred their membership from churches in Alexandria, Charlottesville, Barbersville, and Gordonsville, Virginia, Arizona, Georgia, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, North Dakota, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Washington State, and Washington, D.C. According to the new member form, quote, the only requirement for membership is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, with all this implies repentance, conversion, acknowledgement, serving, end quote. While there's no indication that blacks were ever explicitly barred from joining Westminster, blacks were not allowed to purchase or rent homes in many of the new middle-class neighborhoods that were developing west of Old Town during this period. A newspaper advertisement from 1940 with the heading, Go to Church Sunday, lists Westminster and services at the Haverkamp residence, but black churches in the city, such as Bethel Presbyterian Church, founded in 1926 and the first black church in the Potomac Presbytery, were not included in the listing. As it remains today, the Westminster congregation consisted of many federal government and military officials and their families. A prime example was Major General Harry Vaughn, who served as a White House aide to President Harry Truman and was a Westminster member from 1944 until his death in 1981. Unquestionably, both the city and commonwealth in which Westminster was fashioned were still deeply and overtly racist. Remnants of Jim Crow laws remained in place. In 1940, black Alexandrians taking a bus into D.C. had to sit in the rear of the bus until it had crossed the 14th Street Bridge. On the return trip, they had been compelled to move to a seat in the back as the bus entered Virginia. A very large segment of Alexandria's black population, which accounted for one-fifth of the city's total population, were domestic workers for white residents. It was likely not until January 26, 1948, when President Truman issued an executive order to end segregation in the armed services, that some of Westminster's earliest members first experienced anything resembling integration. Over the years, Westminster has attracted members who worked both in the public sphere and privately behind the scenes to improve race relations and to advance racial equity. One notable example was Carlisle Connie Ring, who is the subject of Part 2. It wasn't until the 1970s that the church began to devote meaningful financial resources toward organizations serving people of color in the community and the world, as we will discuss in part three. Part one, the Cliff Johnson era. A 27-year-old named Cliff R. Johnson arrived in Alexandria in 1943 as Westminster's first called pastor after a short stint at Leesburg, Virginia, Presbyterian Church. A native of Columbus, Georgia, he graduated from Presbyterian College in Clinton, South Carolina, earned a master's degree in journalism from the University of South Carolina, and then attended Union Theological Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. 
He was a fan of the Washington Senators, Peanuts cartoons, sailing, animals, and public schools. He was not a fan of Roman Catholicism, though he valued and sought out opportunities throughout his career for interfaith dialogue. Johnson quickly made an impression in Alexandria. Westminster was adding new members so fast that it soon outgrew its new building and began building a larger sanctuary in 1952. He was in demand as a board member and speaker for community organizations, and he substituted for the U.S. House of Representatives chaplain just five months after starting at Westminster. The ever-affable, caring-to-a-fault Cliff Johnson was the virtual pastor to the entire city of Alexandria, and bankers and real estate agents and the lawyers trusted his word, according to William E. Thompson, who authored a history of the Potomac Presbytery. Johnson's sermon style was plain, spoken, and direct. He often warned the congregation in advance when they were about to hear something with which they might disagree, and he frequently acknowledged the risk of ostracizing members of the congregation. From several previous sermons, I have preached on our relationship with the Negro race and from my conversations with you. I know firsthand that within this congregation there is seemingly every possible shade of attitude towards this pressing and critical question, school integration. It makes me confident that there is no single statement that I can make, therefore, on this matter, that would meet the approval of every member of the congregation. I shall try. I shall try to keep my personal bias concealed. And where my bias shows through, please forgive me. For those of you for whom my position is untenable, please try to keep from reacting in such a way as to refuse to accept other things I have to say. I rather expect many of you to disagree with me. Some of you may even disagree quite strongly. It may even be that most of you will disagree. Be that as it may, please hear me out and then make up your own minds. Johnson believed that it was his duty as a pastor to share his personal convictions with the congregation. You will insist, I believe, that Associate Pastor Jim Lundquist and I preach our convictions, whatever they may be, whatever we believe to be God's will, and you will reserve the right to agree or disagree. I feel responsible always to proclaim my convictions on any issue that has to do with our position as Christians and citizens in America. I do not feel that you are under any obligation always to agree with me. I could not very well live with the fact that at some future time people would look back and see what was transpiring at Westminster the Sunday after so much had been going on in our nation for a week, and to find out that the minister hadn't even been reading the paper, or didn't know what was going on, or didn't even care. Likewise, he believed that it was the duty of individual Christians to make informed judgments about the controversial questions of the day. Every area of political concern is an area of Christian concern, and as a Christian, you have the responsibility to make up your mind about the poll tax, whether you are for it or against it. He explained earlier in this sermon, delivered six months before President Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 into law, that he was opposed to the poll tax because I feel like it is designed to limit the electorate.
and there are some other very fine friends within the sound of my voice who are strongly for it, and that's perfectly all right. Johnson was passionate about freedom of the pulpit and grateful to Westminster Church for giving him that freedom. He acknowledged that this was a luxury that many of his seminary classmates who headed to churches in the South did not enjoy. I urge this church to do in the future as it has done in the past. Thank God, and that is to maintain complete freedom of the pulpit. I will put this congregation up against any congregation that I have ever seen or heard of in this particular regard. From this pulpit, I have always felt perfectly free to say whatever I believe to be God's will. God grant that the prophets of this church shall never be throttled in their proclamation of what they believe to be God's will, however wrong their convictions may be. When you have throttled the Protestant pulpit, you have killed the Protestant church. It is one of my great convictions that the pulpit must be free, and that your minister must feel always not only free, but supported, to say whatever he believes to be God's will. And it is your obligation to support him in this freedom, to proclaim that word, whether you agree with a particular position or not. Nevertheless, he didn't always enthusiastically embrace preaching about race relations before his March 14, 1965, sermon on the events that had transpired a week earlier in Selma, Alabama, he allowed that he postpone this decision until the very last minute, trying to find some way to get out of it. He described himself as in a very foul humor and very waspish disposition. He was clearly angry about the deadly violence inflicted upon the demonstrators but he was also angry that the Protestant church in the South was not getting the credit he thought it deserved to advance racial reconciliation. It is my aim this morning to make everybody mad in due time. So if you find out that you're angry to start with, well, just sit still. If you're not mad, why, sit still, and I'll get to all of you before we're through. And he concluded that worship service with the following. If you want to hear any more talk about the racial issue in the next few weeks, you're going to have to go somewhere else, because I'm not going to talk about it any more for a spell. So if this happens to suit you, why come back? If it doesn't suit you, why see if you can find some other place to go, because I ain't going to talk about it. Johnson's sermon following the May 17, 1954, Brown v. Board of Education decision from the Supreme Court that ruled that racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional was one of his first to address the topic of race directly. He believed that the adverse reaction to the ruling among whites centered on three issues. One, the possibility of intermarriage. Two, the erosion of residential segregation and resultant declining home values, and three, the loss of special privilege and position. And he admitted that these issues were difficult for him personally. What does the Bible have to say about intermarriage? That's easy. It doesn't have anything to say at all. There is absolutely no biblical bias for denying intermarriage. Does this mean that I am in favor of intermarriage? Not at all. It means that ultimately, I am neither for nor against. With my own training and background, 
I find even the idea revulsive and distasteful. It was my privilege to marry whom I pleased, whether my family liked it or not. I insist that the same right belongs to my children. I would be extremely disappointed. More than I would be heartbroken for one of my children to marry a Roman Catholic. As far as my feelings go, I would not want Negroes moving into the neighborhood. I would not want my investment threatened. I would not want to suffer the cultural penalty of being identified with a mixed racial neighborhood. Those are my feelings. But because they are my feelings, that does not mean that they are right. That does not mean they are Christian. It doesn't even mean that they are sound. Those are my feelings. But believe you me, I'm not proud of them, and I don't propose to try to defend them. I have to wrestle with my feelings, and that I propose to do. Dealing with the emotions long and deeply engendered in us will not be easy. But our duty and responsibility as American citizens and as individual Christians is quite clear. I charge you, as fellow Christians, to rise to meet the challenge. Not only as Christians do I charge you, but particularly as Presbyterians. Our Presbyterian theology, built upon the sovereignty of God, furnished the very lifeblood out of which American freedom originally sprang. We can be proud, but not surprised, that within 48 hours of the Supreme Court pronouncement, Dr. Frank Price, moderator of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in the United States, spoke out to say, This ruling was necessary, wise and right, a ringing affirmation of our American faith in liberty and equality. Because of my own decrepit little soul, it may well be that frequently I shall be uncomfortable. But as a Christian and a Presbyterian, I dare not do otherwise than stand up and declare, Praise God, let freedom ring. Johnson also responded from the pulpit to events happening close to home. State Senator Harry F. Byrd's massive resistance effort to block school integration flourished in Alexandria, where Byrd's cousin, Marshall J. Beverly, was mayor in the 1950s. Tensions rose in September 1958 after 14 black students in Alexandria filed suit in U.S. District Court to transfer to white schools. School Superintendent T.C. Williams fired school cafeteria worker Blois Hundley for joining the lawsuit on behalf of her children. A few days later, Williams reversed the firing under the threat of a civil rights investigation by the Justice Department which Beverly characterized as the action of a Gestapo and dictatorial government. In October 1958, after Temple Beth L. Rabbi Emmett Frank condemned Byrd and Virginia's resistance to school integration during a Yom Kippur sermon and was promptly criticized by local officials, a group of 11 Protestant ministers in Alexandria, including Johnson, wrote a letter in support of Frank. They wrote, Certainly, one of the strongest convictions held jointly by Jews and Christians is that religion divorced from daily life is meaningless ceremony. Church and temple, minister and rabbi must endeavor to speak to the deepest needs of people in their personal lives and in their community relationships. In the midst of the turmoil, 
On September 7, 1958, Johnson preached about the question of the integration of the public schools now upon our very own doorstep, which he described as the most critical issue that the Christian church had faced since the Civil War. He deliberately avoided presenting his own position, though he allowed that his position was practically that of all of the other Protestant ministers, rabbis, and priests in this community, i.e. supportive of integration. His message to the congregation was to stand together in support of an orderly transition and to stand against violence and name-calling. We must have freedom in this church to talk among ourselves, to disagree among ourselves, to feel our way toward what we believe to be God's will. First, all of us can ask God to give us loving, forgiving hearts. We can ask God to give us His guidance and the courage to do His will. Second, all of us can and must pray for the community, that God will help this community to find a way to resolve this problem in peace, love, and harmony. Third, we must pray for those who have a different position from our own. Our love for each other which binds us together must be a testimony to the world that the love of Christ which is in our hearts is so powerful that no issue whatever its nature, can tear us apart. On March 14, 1965, exactly a week after Bloody Sunday, the protest against black voter suppression in Selma, at which civil rights marchers were brutally beaten and attacked by police, Johnson preached one of his most powerful sermons about racism. The matter of Negro voter registration in Selma is a moral issue. Hence, it does concern the Christian conscience. When human beings are wronged, discriminated against, or used in any fashion, other than as free human beings, then a Christian has no choice but to act upon that which is taking place. I say without equivocation that the day must end when being a Negro in the South makes one a second-class citizen. As a Christian and as a minister, I must contend for the end of segregation in the church, in the schools, in the business, and in the political life of the South. There have been some people in this church who have felt like I have compromised on this matter of my position regarding segregation and integration, regarding the role of the Negro in this church and in this community, regarding my feelings about what should be the Negro's rights in our nation. I have just spoken my piece, as clearly as I know how. Johnson acknowledged numerous times from the pulpit how difficult it was for him personally to confront the issue of race, and how he continually asked for God's help to avoid giving in to feelings that are loaded with prejudice, resentment, and dislike. Having been raised amid white privilege in Georgia, he was reared to treat blacks kindly and paternalistically and in return, blacks treated him with deference, even as a youngster. It was assumed by my parents and by other adults who surrounded me that they and I were better than Negroes. We were more intelligent, we were more capable, and we were more able. It never crossed my mind that anyone seriously considered Negroes equal to white people, nor did it ever cross the minds of the Negroes with whom I associated. In looking back, I had no feelings of guilt about all this. This is just the way it was. What has brought about my change in feeling about the Negroes? Several things. 
But basically, I find myself disliking them because they now insist on rocking my delightfully luxurious boat. Negroes don't want to treat me with deference anymore. They don't want to act and feel their inferiority to me. As a matter of fact, they want to insist on equality. I liked it so much better the other way. Surely the Negro doesn't expect me to like him as much this way as I did the other when he was my obsequious, obedient, deferential servant, grateful for my paternal care. He no longer wants my paternal care. And hear these words: I do not blame him. Negroes now insist on being full human beings, full citizens with full dignity. This bothers me. Because it invades, upsets, and disturbs my prerogatives and my prejudices and my position. These are my deep and genuine feelings, growing right out of my most deep-laid emotional pattern. But I am now trying, with the daily help of God, and believe me, it takes that, not to live by my feelings, but to live rather by my convictions, my intellect, and my will. I think my feelings are wrong. I think they are not Christian. I will acknowledge them as I have just done. That those feelings are there, but I refuse to live by them. In an April ninth, nineteen sixty-seven sermon about loneliness and the fear of being rejected by other people and rejected by God, Johnson concluded with the following: The other evening, I found myself sitting at a table at dinner, a circular table for ten people, and next to me was seated a Negro gentleman. The only Negro at the table, and really, much to my surprise, I found welling up within me old feelings of resentment and anger and rejection with which I was reared, and I thought I had pretty well licked. There they were, welling up down inside. I found myself thinking about the conflicts in our nation and taking sides in my own feelings then, and tremendously stirred up. And all of a sudden, I looked at this fellow and I started asking myself. I wonder how he feels. I noticed that he was looking straight ahead and eating his dinner while everybody at the table was talking. I wondered how he felt being the only Negro and nine white people, and all this conversation going on of which he was no part about his anxieties, his fears, his feelings of rejection. So all of a sudden, I turned and I started talking to him. I was overwhelmed with the feelings which arose, obviously from him, of gratitude and response to my overtures. That's no great thing. It didn't change anything, I guess, except me. I guess that's not so great, but maybe it is. Maybe it is. Johnson also used his sermons to introduce some policy ideas that were forward-thinking and controversial for the times. In a May tenth, nineteen sixty-four sermon regarding Bible reading and prayer in public schools, he described the Supreme Court decision to ban school-sponsored prayer as wise and proper, an opinion that was shared by the Potomac Presbytery. As Bible reading and prayer are generally conducted in the public schools, a Protestant Bible that is used, a Protestant version of the Lord's Prayer that is said, and therefore the practice discriminates against the Roman Catholics who are present. Against the Jews and against the non-believers, and as a Protestant, I do not want this situation corrected by our turning to have Jewish prayers or Roman Catholic emphasis. 
let me say parenthetically that I wonder how many of the thousands upon thousands of petitioners who are writing into their congressmen, I wonder how many of them faithfully have Bible reading and prayer in their homes each day. Whenever a minority group feels and demonstrates that there has been religious discrimination, then our court must draw the line between separation of church and state even sharper. For I am convinced that our Lord Jesus would not at any time have us use the power of a majority to superimpose on anyone what we believe should be our relationship with Him. His April 7, 1968 sermon in the days following the death of Martin Luther King Jr. included not only his distress and personal regret over the violent, cowardly assassination of one of my fellow ministers, but also a call to action new ways of thinking, some new ways of evaluating and acting to address poverty in the inner cities. First, he advocated taking a half or a fourth of the billions which we are now pouring into this Vietnam War and use it to make tremendous inroads into the massive problem of our cities. They must know that society does care. Second, he called upon Christians to use every iota of restraint insight, and intelligence that we have. We must do everything in our power first to understand. Lastly, as Christians, we have to use everything in our power to manifest restraint against our own counter-feelings of hostility and resentment. For wherever as Christians we feel hatred, we must wrestle with those feelings. In a sermon on open housing and integrated neighborhoods, Johnson asked a rhetorical question that 25 years later would become a popular slogan for wristbands and bracelets. As I try to have the courage to do whenever I face an area of either personal or social moral concern, I try to ask seriously and reflectively, what would Jesus do? And what would Jesus have me to do? His reply to his own question. I have envisioned having Jesus sitting in my study, and in my imagination, I have asked him, if I have the right as a Christian to decline to sell my home to a Negro because he is a Negro, do I have a right as a Christian, either by massive resistance or active involvement, to keep Negroes out of my neighborhood because they are Negroes? I believe that Jesus would say to me, that as a Christian, I do not have that right. I must say, in all honesty, that I do not like that answer. I have feelings against Negroes living in my house or moving into my neighborhood, but I do not think those are Christian feelings, and I do not think Jesus would condone them. Therefore, I am stuck with what I believe Jesus would say. As far as I am concerned, he is my boss, and I can't go against what I believe he would say. In turn, then, I have no choice but to favor open housing, and to say that a community that calls itself Christian should voluntarily accept open housing. In the first sermon from a 1969 series about the church and the world, Johnson floated the idea of a universal basic income to lift people out of poverty and out of the ghetto. I'm not saying I'm in favor yet, but I'm saying I'm ready to hear some more about a serious proposal to provide a minimum family income for every family in the country, including every family in the ghetto.
I am here with assuming my Christian responsibility to be willing to contribute to the solution directly, wherever I have the wisdom and the fortitude and the commitment to do so, and indirectly wherever I can, through my government or my church. Associate Pastor John Watkins was also addressing themes of racial and economic justice in his sermons during the late 1960s. We cannot preach that Christ breaks every barrier down between men and then go ahead and maintain those barriers of race, economics, and social status. This is a contradiction in terms, and we cannot preach the justice of God, God's compassion for the needy and the downtrodden and the poverty-stricken, and then be unconcerned for those in poverty as they live their lives here in Alexandria, in our nation, and in the world. Jesus did not just talk about God's concern for the needs of men. He was concerned for the needs of men in this world. And this is the challenge, then, that is given to the church in our day, to proclaim and to witness to our God, who is chosen to be known by His actions in the very center of life, not just on the fringes of life, although, as I've said, He's there to be sure, but God wants to be known in the center of life. This is the meaning of the Incarnation that God assumes unto himself human life in all of its fullness. Now, there are healthy signs that the church has accepted the challenge, for the church is becoming as individuals and as a church more involved in the great social issues of our time. It is wrestling with a new theology, which seeks basically nothing more than to restate the ancient truths that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself but in the form that men will understand today. It is seeking new forms of worship and new forms of ministry to the secular city in which we live. We have picked up the challenge, but now it remains for all of us to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to follow our Lord who acts in the center of life, in the midst of life, the God we see in Jesus Christ, and to follow Him wherever He leads us, wherever that may be. One realm where Johnson refrained from delivering personal viewpoints from the pulpit was endorsements of political candidates, but he nevertheless made himself available on a Sunday evening, January 31, 1960, in Fellowship Hall to share his views regarding a Catholic presidential candidate, and he sent a memo to the congregation inviting them to attend. With our nations being confronted with the declared candidacy for the presidency by a member of the Roman Catholic Church, each American must now deal with this issue according to his own conscience and convictions. As a Christian, a Presbyterian, a minister, and an American, I feel that all four of these roles require of me to make public my own convictions. By the same token, I feel that the pulpit of the church, of which I am minister, cannot be used legitimately for the presentation and resolution of such an issue. Therefore, I am choosing a Sunday evening in Fellowship Hall as the time and occasion for my presenting my views. This means that all who are interested may come, and all who are uninterested or have convictions which do not need to be reviewed can comfortably stay away. This will provide me with the freedom to speak my convictions, knowing that I'm speaking to people who have deliberately chosen to come, with a full awareness of the topic to be discussed. There is sparse evidence that Johnson's views on integration, racial justice, and other hot-button issues of mid-20th century offended members to the point of driving them away from the church. 
Westminster grew rapidly during most of the time that Johnson was senior pastor and reached its membership peak of 2,100 members in 1965, five years before his death. He frequently acknowledges offending listeners on both sides of the political divide, including during the sermon that he preached following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. My decisions to speak and not to speak on social issues have had their effect on the membership and outlook of this church. On the one hand, we have lost a little cluster of capable members who could not tolerate this church any longer because they felt that I was not aggressive enough in declaring my position on social issues. At the other end of the spectrum, we have lost a little cluster of members who have felt me to be too determined to sound off on things, which, in their judgment, were not the legitimate concern of the church. One week following the Sunday when he preached about Selma, in a sermon titled, Making My Position Clear, Johnson prefaced his sermon by acknowledging the positive and supportive response he had received from members of the congregation. I should like to make a brief commentary about last Sunday's sermon. For those of you who heard it, I want to assure you that you can sleep quietly this morning, for the most consequential thing that I intend to say has to do with my being in favor of motherhood, righteousness, and the American flag. I want to say seriously that I'm grateful for and humbled by the rather flood of letters of commendation and support which I have received and the plethora of telephone calls and the number of people who stopped me in the course of the week on the street, here at the church and elsewhere. And by the same token, I would like to express my appreciation for the gracious and silent restraint of those who may have disagreed with me very strongly. Johnson perhaps had a sense that the comings and goings of members over this or that controversy were far less significant than the legacy that Westminster would leave for the years to come. In his 1958 sermon on school integration, he presciently envisaged that future generations would seek to know where Westminster stood during his tenure as senior pastor. Someday this cloud is going to pass. I do not know whether it will be two years, five years, ten years, or fifty years. But some day the cloud will pass. This issue will have been resolved. The storm will clear, the skies will brighten. And then history will be written. Somebody will go back and write what was done in this community in this conflict. It is my unabashed aim, as the minister of this church, for Westminster to have one glowing page in that book. I should like for that page which shall be written in history about the conduct of Westminster to run something like this. There was a bitter struggle in that community. There were high feelings, there was anger, and there were internal conflicts throughout the community. The bitterness and the feelings ran into one crisis after another. But right on through the battle, there was a church known as Westminster Church, which, in her unity, stood solidly as a rock. Oh, there were feelings in the church, there were differences of opinion, and sometimes the feelings would begin to run too high. Just when the battle was the hottest, just when it would appear that a break was inevitable, someone would stand up and shout, Christ is King. Across the field of battle would echo the voice, Christ is King, Christ is King. And then all hands would be joined, all hearts would be made tender, and Westminster would stand shoulder to shoulder to face the world.
Johnson's sermons represent not only a rare and personal window into a human being who struggled mightily with his deeply entrenched feelings about race and white privilege, but also a treatise on how his understanding of his Christian faith and Christ's example guided the evolution of his viewpoints on issues related to race during his too short career. His congregants no doubt were wrestling with the same moral questions, and thousands of Westminster members during the Cliff Johnson era sought out his insight and guidance. He packs his church every Sunday with people who come to be surprised, stirred, lifted, and brought closer to what they feel in their bones is ultimate truth, wrote Washington Post staff reporter Kenneth Dole in 1959. When he died from a brain tumor in February 1970, just a month shy of 54 years old, the Alexandria Gazette described Johnson as someone who could transfer a message of religious impact and uplift without seeming to give a sermon, and wrote that he strove for better understanding between denominations, particularly Catholic and Protestant, and between the black and white races. Part 2. Connie Ring, Faith in Action in the Community Cliff Johnson's absolutely fabulous preaching was one of the many reasons that the young newlyweds Jane and Carlisle, Connie Ring, chose to join Westminster in 1957. It was close to their Park Fairfax home, and it was very friendly and had lots of young couples and families, says Jane. The Rings had arrived in Alexandria a year earlier after Connie had graduated from Duke University Law School. Jane had to return to Durham, North Carolina for a semester to finish up her degree at Duke, so their search for a church home didn't begin in earnest until 1957. We walked into Westminster and immediately felt at home, and we knew we were meant to be there, adds Jane. Connie was born with an appreciation for public education in his DNA. His father was superintendent of Jamestown, New York Public Schools, his mother and sister were both teachers in public schools, and his two brothers spent their careers in higher education. Connie was the exception, the only non-education professional in his family. As a volunteer with legal aid in Durham during law school, Connie provided legal assistance to black residents in parts of the city where the streets were not even paved. This experience gave him a first-hand look at racial discrimination. For a white kid from upstate New York, it was eye-opening, says Jane. Connie believed every child deserved a quality public education and that such training was the great equalizer of racial and socioeconomic inequities. So it's no surprise that when he arrived in Alexandria in 1956, he adamantly opposed the massive resistance against school integration that was prevalent in Alexandria and across the state of Virginia. One of Connie's first errands as a new Alexandria resident was to register to vote for the 1956 presidential election. During the Byrd era, the senator and his machine had successfully limited the size of the electorate. Voter participation averaged 12%. State restrictions that were enacted in 1902 were still in place. A poll tax of $1.50 paid in each of the previous three years and blank sheet registration that required the applicant to answer a series of questions in writing under oath on a blank piece of paper. When he was handed a blank piece of paper, Connie became infuriated and asked the election official, what would you have done for a black? 
Connie promptly sued the Board of Elections, which resulted in a standardized registration form. Connie and Jane became involved in the community and at Westminster Church almost immediately. Connie served on the Parks and Recreation Commission and the North Ridge Citizens Association. He and Jane were youth leaders at Westminster starting in 1957. One outing they planned for the church youth was a picnic with a group of black kids from Junior Village, a home for homeless children located in southwest D.C. A rainstorm forced the rings to relocate the picnic to Fellowship Hall. A fellow member was arranging flowers in the kitchen and lodged a complaint with Cliff Johnson, who apparently took no action. As chair of the Alexandria Republican Party from 1962 to 1968, Connie further developed his reputation for activism, seeking to find middle ground between the two prevailing political forces in the city, the bird wing of the Democratic Party and the more progressive Democrats. He worked to create voter registration sites outside of city government buildings, reduce the one-year residency requirement for voting, and eliminate the state poll tax. Connie became close friends with Reverend Joseph Penn of Alexandria's Third Baptist Church, a historically black church, when the two of them worked together to reach out to labor groups and black voters on behalf of Linwood Holton's 1965 gubernatorial campaign. When D.C. erupted into riots following the MLK assassination, Reverend Penn contacted Connie. Concerned about possible disturbances in Alexandria, Reverend Penn asked Connie to enlist some of his white friends and neighbors to join him and a group of black residents at the Alexandria courthouse as a show of unity and calm. Connie did so. In all, about 50 or 60 people showed up. In 1969, Reverend Penn gave a presentation to the men's group at Westminster about the challenges facing blacks living in ghettos. Members of both churches together organized several fundraising events, including a concert by the Howard University Gospel Choir at Alexandria City High School on March 1, 1970. The concert raised the equivalent of about $16,000 in today's dollars, funds that were used to start a daycare center at a low-income housing project on North Payne Street, support the adoption of families in need, and underwrite the operation of mobile health unit facilities. According to the concert program, our two congregations have undertaken this joint effort as a living demonstration that two races can work together for constructive purposes on a full parity basis in this time when the world seems to be saying that this is no longer possible. We feel that this joint demonstration of unity is particularly essential at this time, after the tensions of last fall. Connie endeavored to form close, personal relationships with other black leaders in the city. He and Jane hosted a monthly breakfast of black leaders at their home just down the hill from Westminster that was attended by Ferdinand Day, Melvin Miller, Helen Miller, Nelson Green, Ruby Tucker, and Jean Tucker, among others. In 1969, a city council that was composed of five Democrats and two Republicans appointed Connie Ring to the school board, the first Republican appointed to that body in Alexandria's history. These were tense times to be a public official. In May 1970, a black teenager was shot and killed by a white 7-Eleven store manager at the corner of Commonwealth Avenue and West Glebe Road. Six nights of rioting and firebombing followed. In November 1970, a group of 20 white youth and men burned a cross in front of George Washington High School, where 25% of the students were black, and school superintendent John Album's house was picketed by the members of the American Nazi Party. 
Another white-only organization, the Alexandria Citizens Defense League, took it upon themselves to patrol the streets. School integration was the defining and most divisive issue for the school board during Connie's tenure. By the late 1960s, there was only token desegregation in some of the schools. In May 1971, the school division adopted a secondary school reorganization that integrated upper grades but kept the existing elementary school structure intact. The 6222 plan was favored by Superintendent Album, who, unlike his predecessor, T.C. Williams, was more of a pragmatist rather than an obstructionist when it came to integration. When school reconvened that fall under the new plan, Connie and Richard B. Hills, an assistant school superintendent, stood outside of Hammond High School to greet the buses. They escorted black students inside the building to prevent white parents from throwing rocks at them. Prior to this time, Hammond, with a student body of 1,547, had two black students and no black teachers. The 6222 plan, however, did not address the growing segregation of elementary schools on the east side of the city, and Alexandria City Public Schools, ACPS, was again informed by the Federal Department of Health, Education, and Welfare's Regional Civil Rights Director that it did not comply with current law, thus threatening federal funding. Album pledged to HEW Civil Rights Director J. Stanley Pottinger that ACPS would come up with a plan so that no elementary school would have a majority of black students. Any plan would inevitably involve busing young students around the city. According to the ACPS website pages that document the school's division's history, the rumor that elementary schools were about to be desegregated brought crowds out to the March 1972 school board meeting opposing the change. The George Mason PTA president said 95% of its members were against busing and described the school as the equivalent of a church, the center of neighborhood activities. Album backed down and said he would no longer bus students across the city. The dispute over elementary busing to try to desegregate the schools caused the conservative city council, who appointed the school board members, to flex their political muscle. They replaced the liberal members who supported desegregation of the elementary schools with conservatives. The city council replaced two departing school board members, including Ferdinand Day, with busing opponents, but they reappointed Connie, who had initially opposed busing for elementary school students. Numerous plans were put forth by Album and school board members who were attempting to thread the needle between white opponents of busing and the prospect of court-ordered busing if the school board failed to act. HEW had already begun the process to cut off federal funding. In May 1973, Connie offered a compromise plan that would pair eight elementary schools and require busing of approximately 3,000 students. A predominantly white school was paired with a predominantly black school. Students would attend one of the paired schools for the lower grades and the other paired school for the upper grades. Jane describes as scary the angry letters that Connie received from constituents opposed to the busing plan. Connie ultimately voted against the final version of the compromise, which the school board passed with a 5-4 to four vote. Connie ultimately voted against the final version of the compromise, which the school board passed with a 5-4 to four vote. He favored his original version, that was less expensive and required fewer children to be bused, but which placed more of the burden of busing on black children. Jane recalls that Connie told fellow school board member Bill Hurd that, if you're not careful, you will resegregate the city because families will move out of the city or transfer to private schools.
As Connie predicted, white parents expressed their displeasure by voting with their feet. In the summer of 1974, more than 900 families moved out of Alexandria or enrolled their children in private schools. By 1976, the number of white children attending ACPS had fallen by half compared to what it had been in 1970. Connie was again reappointed to the school board in 1975 and served as chair from 1975 to 1978. During his school board years, Connie visited black churches at least once a month. One of those churches was Ebenezer Baptist, where the Reverend Austin Booker had been on the school board with Connie and Ferdinand Day. During a sermon about loving one another that Connie attended, Reverend Booker asked the congregation to turn to the person next to them and kiss them on the cheek. It's not known who was more taken aback by this, Connie or the person sitting next to him. In 1979, Connie was elected to the city council along with his friend Democrat Nelson Green, who was the second black to serve on the city council, and he served for nearly a decade. In 1988, Connie made an unsuccessful bid for mayor against incumbent Democratic Mayor Jim Moran. Connie was also a member of the Alexandria Redevelopment and Housing Authority for 11 years. Connie, who died in August 2021 at the age of 90, was one of many Westminster members who have held public office in Alexandria and served on city commissions. For a period of time in the early 1980s, five-term Democratic Mayor Charles Beatley and Republican City Council members Robert Calhoun and Connie were all active members. I had to keep a little bit of peace with both sides, recalls Dr. George Perra, senior pastor at Westminster from 1980 to 1995. Adds Winky Campbell, whose husband, the late Reverend Don Campbell, succeeded Johnson as senior pastor at Westminster, it was people like Connie who stood firmly but not aggressively for what they believed in and set a beautiful example for everyone else. Part 3. The Evolution of Westminster's Congregation For most of its first three decades, Westminster was growing by leaps and bounds. The church's two governing bodies, the session and the diaconate, were nearly single-mindedly focused on a recurring cycle of planning new construction, raising funds to pay for construction, managing construction, confronting new space constraints, planning more construction, and so forth. From its founding, the church facility has been a hub of community activity. One of the city's oldest scouts, BSA troops, Troop 129, has been operating continuously since January 1941. As early as 1954, the brand-new Sanctuary and Fellowship Hall were used by Temple Beth El for high holidays. President Harry S. Truman laid the cornerstone of the present sanctuary on November 23, 1952. Along with pointing out that he had met his wife, Bess, at age six in Sunday school at his family's Presbyterian church, his remarks also called upon the nation's churches to hold up this standard for peace and justice and to point the way. Our churches must keep pace not only with the changes in our physical development, but also, and more importantly, with the changes of social problems. Our churches must not become a place to hide from the facts of the world about us, nor a mere badge of social responsibility. Too often our churches have been blind to their most important function, which is to bring about the application of religious principles to our daily lives and in our work. We must all wage a ceaseless war against injustice in our society. 
The churches in particular are a force which should fight for brotherhood and decency and better lives for all our people. It is from a strong and vital church, from the strength of all our churches, that government must draw its vision. In the teachings of our Savior, there is no room for bigotry, for discrimination, for the embittered struggle of class against class, or for the hostilities of nation against nation. In those early decades, the church budget was tight and mainly consisted of personnel and building expenses. Cliff Johnson often mentioned in sermons the need for members to dig a little deeper in order to cover expenses. Church office staff turned over frequently, as did organists and music directors, until Dana Brown was hired in 1957. He served until 1990. As the church grew, it added associate pastors and a director of Christian education. At least two other congregations attempted to lure Cliff Johnson from Westminster, so church leaders strove to provide competitive compensation packages. On the occasion of Johnson's 25th anniversary at Westminster, the congregation gave Cliff and his wife, Allie, a cash payment of $10,000, equivalent to $84,000 in today's dollars, so that they could take a trip around the world, which they made in two stages, in 1968 and 1969. Benevolences, funds given by the church to support people in need outside of the church, made up a very small percentage of the budget in the 1940s and 1950s. Session records from 1947 indicate that Westminster contributed $7 to a Presbyterian denomination-wide fund for the Negro Work Campaign. This campaign aimed to help organize new churches under black leadership and to raise salaries for black Presbyterian ministers. According to General Assembly minutes from 1947, in view of the fact that the average salary of the Negro ministers is approximately $1,300, and in accord with the policy of the Assembly to raise salaries to an adequate level, we recommend that the Committee on Negro Work raise the salaries of Negro ministers as soon as possible, and that this year presbyteries and churches be encouraged to make additional gifts for this purpose. By comparison, Cliff Johnson earned $3,625 in 1948. Westminster also participated in a 1953 General Assembly campaign to expand Stillman College, an HBCU in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, to a four-year liberal arts college, and to improve church buildings and leadership in selected Negro communities, according to Session Minutes. The session committed to a gift of $1,204 paid over three years, which represented about 10% of church's annual mission spending at that time. A letter was also sent to the congregation inviting them to make individual gifts to the campaign. In the wake of the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision, elected officials in Alexandria fully embraced the bird machine's massive resistance. Nevertheless, according to author Douglas S. Reed, there was significant local support for racial moderation. The body of evidence from Cliff Johnson's sermons and from anecdotes buried in session minutes from these years suggests that Westminster may have attracted some of these racial moderates into its membership. For example, in 1954, the session passed a motion to employ a couple or single person, regardless of color, to act as caretaker for the church and allowing the caretaker the use of the church apartment. A black man was hired as the building caretaker and lived in the apartment. The context in which this action took place is worth noting. 
The neighborhoods around Westminster and many other areas in Alexandria had restrictive covenants that prevented property from being sold, transferred, leased, rented, or conveyed to any person not of the Caucasian race. In fact, the deed of sale for the parcel of land purchased by the Potomac Presbytery to establish Westminster very likely contained a similar covenant. The city of Alexandria was the last jurisdiction in the metropolitan area to enact an open housing law, making these covenants illegal. Alexandria's version, which was passed in 1969 and took effect in 1970, contained a giant loophole. It exempted transactions that were made without a broker. Although it cannot be confirmed, Cliff Johnson was likely one of the 56 Alexandria clergymen who signed a letter in 1967 calling upon Alexandrians to reject segregated housing practices. In 1961, according to session minutes, by formal action, permission was granted for a colored pupil of the Minister of Music, Dana Brown, to use the organ of the church for practice. In 1966, George Weber, a member of Shiloh Baptist Church, which was founded by former enslaved African Americans in 1863, was invited to teach the youth group's Sunday school class. Also around that time, Johnson's son, Samuel, recalls a black couple visiting the church for worship and shaking his father's hand at the door on their way out. After they left, an usher whispered to associate pastor Charlie Owens, What do you think they were doing here? Charlie calmly replied, Worshipping God, I suppose. According to family lore, adds Samuel, prior to the very first black visitors to the church, Johnson had announced from the pulpit that if any black person ever came to Westminster to worship, that person would be made completely welcome or he would immediately resign. A question from a member about how Westminster would respond if a black person wished to join was taken up by the session in 1962. According to the meeting minutes, an open discussion was held for a short period pertaining to our policy on segregation. It was concluded that no formal action or restatement is necessary in view of the statement in our book of church order and our own previous statements and actions, all of which provide for no distinctions as to race as it pertains to church membership and worship. Despite this affirmation, very few black families have joined Westminster over the years. There were two black families who were members during the 1970s and similar numbers in the 1980s and 1990s. Westminster has slightly increased its percentage of members of color in the past decade. In the weeks prior to the August 28, 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, some Westminster members wished to host out-of-town participants at the church and in their homes. Westminster opted against having marchers stay on site, but a number of members offered up their homes. Even though the General Assembly refused to endorse the march, six local Presbyterian pastors participated, none from Westminster. During the tumultuous late 1960s, there were only a few noteworthy session actions. At a called session meeting held after worship on March 14, 1965, the session voted to place envelopes in the pews for voluntary contributions to the family of Reverend James Reeb, who was killed by white supremacists on March 11th while marching from Selma to Montgomery. Reeb was ordained as a Presbyterian minister and serving as a Unitarian Universalist minister when he was severely beaten and died a few days later from head injuries. Three men were tried for Reeb's murder but were acquitted by an all-white jury. 
Westminster's men of the church took up the topic of civil disobedience at their meeting in February 1968, with Associate Pastor John Watkins speaking about the controversial action taken by our official governing bodies in the Presbyterian Church. Watkins was referring to a statement from the General Assembly calling on churches to give the support of Christian compassion to any member who, following his conscience in obedience to the word, engages in civil disobedience. Cliff Johnson addressed the statement in his sermon the Sunday following the Men of the Church gathering. As most of you know, the General Assembly of our denomination adopted a statement several years ago and has reaffirmed its position on at least one occasion that where there is an unjust law and where every other recourse has been exhausted, there are times when, as a last measure, civil disobedience is to be accepted as a necessary measure. After much reflection, I have come to the conclusion that I am opposed to this statement and would like to think that if I had been at the assembly, I would have voted against it. First, I think its intent is misunderstood by about 99% of the people who deal with it, both in and out of the church. Therefore, I think its wording is unfortunate, misleading, and self-defeating. The reaction of the men of this church the other night bears out what I am saying. The intent of the statement is no different from what has always been the position of the church, and one with which practically every person here would agree, and that is, that in a circumstance where a Christian has to choose between his loyalty to the state and his loyalty to Christ, he really has no choice, no matter what the personal cost may be. But you see, that's not what is understood at all. The second reason I'm opposed to this statement is that it does not deal at all with the issue that the assembly was really trying to face. The assembly was really trying to come to grips with racial injustice and how Christians should deal with it, but it doesn't say so anywhere in the statement. Civil disobedience may have been the impetus for the session to create a subcommittee on community relations in late 1968. At the same time, it created a subcommittee on community concern to study any and all social needs of the community. It was perhaps under the auspices of this later subcommittee that the Howard University Gospel Choir Benefit Concert was organized in partnership with Third Baptist Church in March 1970. The printed program for the concert, which was held just a few weeks after the death of Cliff Johnson and dedicated to his memory, described Johnson as someone who strove for a better understanding between religious denominations and races and noted that the event was one of his last efforts for community betterment. For the three decades before this concert, no sustained program of church mission giving directed to the local community appears to have existed. Most of the church's benevolence giving during this earlier period was forwarded to the denomination to support missionaries and Presbyterian colleges, and for special collections such as the Joy Offering, which provides assistance to current and retired church workers, and the Presbyterian Women's Birthday Offering. That situation evolved in the late 1960s, when the two session subcommittees referenced above were created, and in 1969, when the Potomac Presbyteries Church and Society Committee made a set of recommendations to member churches. Among those recommendations, encouraging churches to use their facilities as collateral in arranging loans for low- and moderate-income housing development, and encouraging congregations and individuals to invest monies in the housing revolving fund of the Housing Development Corporation. 
giving priority to the concern for a racially inclusive ministry in the establishment and location of new churches, developing programs to enable congregants to understand and respond creatively to urban crisis and the problems of race and poverty in our metropolitan area, and to act upon changes that are needed in suburban communities to relieve the crises in the central cities demonstrating its concern for the furtherance of economic justice by asking all agencies, committees, congregations, and individual members to purchase goods and services only from companies that practice fair employment policies and to explore with their banks with respect to hiring and upgrading members of minority groups and lending money to members of minority groups for housing and economic development. There's no indication that Westminster considered adopting these recommendations, and it appears that the congregation was searching for what it perceived to be the proper balance between financial support and active engagement. In 1969, Associate Pastor Watkins led a group of about 30 members to assess Westminster's mission and to consider the question, how does a suburban church with its affluence and potential leadership relate effectively to the community in which it exists? For the discussion, he prepared a background document, Toward a New Perspective, that makes the case that, unlike the inward activism that characterized the church in the first half of the 20th century, think men's and women's groups, bowling and softball leagues, the church must leave the 20th century with an activism that is theologically rooted with an outward thrust, if it is to witness to the coming of the kingdom of God. The following broad proposals resulted from these discussions. Act in concert with other churches and synagogues in the community to provide a positive social and spiritual ministry to neighborhoods in which there is demonstrated evidence of need. Through its official organizations, take forthright positions in promoting necessary social change. Encourage and support individual members of the congregation and groups within the church in their efforts to involve themselves in effective Christian witness. Seek opportunities to implement policy positions adopted by the General Assembly. Provide for the education and training of its members so that they may understand the Church's mission and contribute to its fulfillment. Allocate its resources, funds, physical facilities, and talents to assure a continuing level of support for the accomplishment of objectives derived from the foregoing. From these lofty intentions, at least one specific initiative developed. Northeast Ecumenical Parish, or NEEP, a group of six churches along the Upper Russell Road Corridor aiming to serve the Arlandria-Linhaven area of Alexandria, concerned about the vast chasm of human need in the rapidly changing area and its inability to minister effectively to that need, NEEP aspired to establish a community center that would serve as a hub for various community services and agencies. While there was an effort to hire a full-time director, NEEP as an organization appears to have been short-lived. In the summer of 1970, the Westminster Session defeated a motion, by one vote, that would have permitted the use of the church facility for a daycare center for black families with limited means. The proposal had the support of the program committee, chaired by Elder Homer Walkup and Associate Pastor Watkins, who was serving as interim senior pastor during these months following Johnson's death. At the same meeting, the session also defeated the following motion, resolved by the session that Westminster reaffirm its commitment to the Third Baptist Church of Alexandria and to other groups to work for the betterment of the people in the Negro ghetto community or areas and to expand its benevolence programs to include support in the area of daycare centers and similar activities.
The opposition to the daycare center may have been in part racially motivated, but might also have reflected a sentiment on the part of the all-male session that mothers should be at home caring for their children. It also likely stemmed from the preference of some Westminster members for a more detached level of community involvement. In his sermon the Sunday immediately following this session meeting, Watkins' disappointment about the decision was palpable. This has been one of the most difficult weeks in my ministry, to try to decide on a sermon. I want to share with you my theological pilgrimage of the last week. Now, to lay down the ground rules, I'm not doing this in order to reopen a discussion about a decision that has been made. I, I do not wish to do that. Nor are my reflections an attempt in any sense. Nor are my reflections an attempt in any sense to chastise those who disagree with my particular view, to convince you of my point of view. I simply want to state my point of view, and you may take it or leave it as you wish. And neither in talking about my theological pilgrimage of the last week do I want to cast any aspersions on the session. As I said earlier, in my judgment, they conducted themselves in a magnificent way a way that truly allows them the honor of the title elder, ruling elder, of this congregation. Neither do I want to convey in any sense any bitterness or disappointment or hatred, but rather I simply want to lay myself bare before you, because confession is good for the soul, and I feel I will not rest until I have spoken as you have spoken to me. And I want to share my pastoral concern and love for this congregation with you. There have been three passages that have haunted me for this past week, and for the past several weeks. And the first of these is found in the Gospel of Matthew, in the 25th chapter, beginning at the 44th verse. And then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see thee hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to thee? And then he, the Lord, will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. As I have thought about this daycare proposal that has occupied so much of our thoughts in the past week, and my thoughts for the past couple of months, I can never escape this passage. Never. And I try. When the negative comments came, when those who had good reasons why this should not happen, I wanted to back off. I wanted to go to the session and say, let's not even discuss it. Let's just drop it, for I am not a man who enjoys controversy, I'm not a man who enjoys a good fight, and I wanted to back off. But whenever that thought of backing off came into my mind, all I could see was Peter in the courtyard when the maid asked him whether he knew this man from Nazareth, Jesus, and Peter's answer was, Woman, I do not know him. I could not escape the idea and the concept that Christ was looking at me to see whether I, too, was going to deny him when the chips were down. If these mothers and children of whom we're talking are not one of the least of the brethren, then I simply do not know who the least are. I really don't. If these are not the least, who are they? Somebody in far-off Africa? Somebody in Japan or Taiwan? Who are the least? And I don't know unless they are these mothers and children who have so little and simply want to get ahead. Lord, when did we see thee hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to thee? As you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. I have never been able to get that passage out of my mind, for it convicts me. Now there's another passage that bothered me. 
bothered me in the wee small hours of the morning when I lay in bed thinking about these things. And this is the passage found in Mark in the 8th chapter. It occurs right after Peter had tried to get Jesus to stop going to Jerusalem in order that he might not die. And Jesus, in reply to Peter, called to him the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? This passage haunted me when I thought about all of the sacrifices that would be demanded of us in order to have a daycare center here at Westminster. But somehow it always ended up that it was bricks and mortar and convenience that were being equated with people, and I myself could never make the equation work out. It was like trying to add apples and oranges, and I simply couldn't do it. Yes, the center would have disrupted my days, again, probably more than anyone else's, and my schedule. And really, as I thought about having a daycare center here at Westminster, I really wondered at this particular time whether or not I could take any more disruptions to my day, for there are enough of them now. But then Christ's life was disrupted by a cross, so... What were my petty sacrifices? Nothing. Nothing at all. Now, some people rightly pointed out that the building would not be used for a specific Christian purpose. That is, the school would not have, as its primary goal, Christian education. But then it occurred to me, we house the Republicans, the Harmonizers, the Scouts, the Brailers, Square Dancing, all of whom may or may not ever mention Christ, I don't know, but all serve the community, and they serve the community well. I, too, have been concerned to save the integrity of Westminster as an institution and as a church. I, too, was concerned that the building be put to a proper use. And in the equation, I have never felt that the building standing vacant was a proper use. I guess that my greatest fear was that in trying to save Westminster's integrity, we might be losing it. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? This passage would not let me go. The decision has been made, so be it. Amen and amen. And now we must all live with it together. Let not the ones whose point of view prevailed be proud or haughty, but let them all confront their brethren with love and meekness and lowliness, and let not those whose point of view was lost be bitter and filled with any kind of hatred. Let no one allow self-righteousness to take hold, but let us forbear one another in love. Over and over again, I've heard that this issue will split the congregation. And I said to those who said that to me, I, I do not believe it. I do not believe it because we are bound together by Jesus Christ and none other. And being bound in Christ, there is no room for pride, for we are all saved by grace. And there is no room for bitterness or dissension or hatred, for Christ, the one perfect man, was crucified wrongly, and he prayed from the cross, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And if Christ can pray that prayer, then certainly we can forgive our brethren for whatever they have done or not done. Let us live together as those who know that in Christ there is one body, not many, but one, one body, 
one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. According to Pam Walkup, Homer's daughter, this disappointment eventually led to the creation of the Westminster Weekday Preschool in 1974, and from the beginning, there were a few scholarship slots for underprivileged children. Her father served on the preschool board for many years. In a number of other local initiatives, Westminster played a prominent role. Camp Glenkirk, which was the primary Presbyterian camp and conference center in the area for four decades, beginning in 1960, held its first-ever inner-city camp in the summer of 1967. As William Thompson, who has documented the history of the National Capital Presbytery, colorfully describes, it was largely a paternalistic effort, since the volunteer camp counselors were all white. But the presence there of some of the Presbytery's heavyweight old guard pastors, Graham Lacey, Cliff Johnson, Carl Pritchett, lent considerable credence to the effort and allayed the criticism that such groundbreaking efforts were only the concerns of the dangerous young Turks of the Presbytery. In 1968, the Potomac Presbytery and the Washington City Presbytery joined forces on an experimental ministry known as the Landmark Shopping Center Ministries, created as a partial reply to the Potomac Presbytery's continuing racial agenda issues, according to Thompson. This novel ministry was designed to attract suburban apartment dwellers, who were perhaps seeking less traditional church programs with such amenities as childcare, counseling, consumer information, art classes, and theater productions. Johnson was basically a traditionalist, but he gamely supported this experimental ministry in his role as chairman of Potomac Presbytery's Oversight Committee, explains Thompson. And one incident is illustrative of some of its problematic ways and why Dr. Johnson, who had rarely known a non-success, finally surrendered his involvement with the landmark ministry. As Thompson tells it, at one major celebrative communion service, attendees were charged an entrance fee, and he was standing next to Johnson when the Westminster pastor exclaimed, I'll be damned if I am ever going to pay to attend a communion service that celebrates the free grace of Jesus Christ. He turned on his heel and left. Landmark Ministries closed in 1970 and left the two presbyteries with a loss of $1.3 million, equivalent to $9 million in today's dollars. A much more successful and long-lived collaboration began in 1969 when Westminster and a dozen other Alexandria churches formed Alive, Alexandrians involved ecumenically. Alive is the oldest and largest organization fighting poverty and hunger in the city, and Westminster has provided continued financial support without interruption for the 50-plus years of its existence. Though the session voted against participating in a general assembly offering for Negro churches in 1971, Westminster in the early years of Campbell's pastorate was stepping up its commitment to several other newly formed local organizations. Those included FISH, emergency services such as childcare, transportation, shopping, meals, etc., FOLD, homes for teenage children who needed group foster care, Meals on Wheels, Hopkins House, services to the inner city of Alexandria, including Thanksgiving turkey distribution, Bridge, help to international students and others of foreign birth provided by the Presbytery and five churches in Presbytery, and Guest House, which helps women successfully re-enter the community from incarceration. The pattern of having a church member assigned as a representative to each of these organizations began during this time. 
Campbell preached from an outline rather than a prepared text, so copies of his sermons are not available. But his widow, Winky, confirms that her husband's views on civil rights were similar to Johnson's, and that her husband was more outspoken than some of his peers on matter of race. Back in those days, some Presbyterian ministers could lose their pulpit if they were supporting integration, says Winky, echoing comments that Cliff Johnson made about the freedom of the pulpit that Westminster afforded to him. But he was also old enough to know that you can't get too far ahead of congregation on divisive issues. Sarah Yancey, who was a member of Westminster in the 1960s and 1970s and was close to the Campbells, recalls that Don was very much an advocate for racial equality, though he didn't necessarily use the pulpit to advance the cause. Campbell, who worked to unify the Southern Potomac Presbytery and the Northern Washington City Presbytery in 1972, see Historic Moment, died prematurely at age 51 of a heart attack while vacationing at Chautauqua in the summer of 1979. On Dr. George Perra's first evening in Alexandria, after having accepted the senior pastor position at Westminster, a group of members took him on a driving tour of the city, including the statue of the Confederate soldier that stood at the time at Washington and Prince Streets. Perra remembers wondering, Have I made a mistake? I tossed and turned that night. I came from a very different background from some of the other Westminster pastors. The church where Perra landed in 1980 was, as he describes, Southern and most of the members had witnessed segregation at some time. This guy from the North shouldn't lecture them too much on their experience, says Para, in describing the sense of some in the congregation. He felt that his role was to open up the dialogue. I didn't want to do anything that would shut down the conversation. You can blast them from the pulpit and turn people off, but that wasn't my style. Nevertheless, in 2014, when Para was named a living legend of Alexandria, he was quoted as saying, my interest in the world about me has served me well in my preaching. The theologian Reinhold Niebuhr said when a pastor writes a sermon, he should hold the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. Para is certain that he never preached a sermon specifically on the topic of race relations, but that his viewpoints would come through nonetheless. I could not have avoided the topic. That's not my nature. But I really worked behind the scenes with leaders of the black community and did my own part when I could. The Reverend Dr. Albert Ransom, Jr. attended Westminster for a couple of years in the 1980s. Ransom was a cousin of Medgar Evers and a black Baptist preacher who had served as an assistant to MLK in Montgomery, Alabama, and marched with him. He preached a couple of times from the Westminster pulpit and, having been trained as an operatic singer, sang solos accompanied by music director Dana Brown. He later became an associate pastor at Alfred Street Baptist Church and a faculty member at Virginia Theological Seminary. Ransom describes the Westminster congregation as inviting, friendly, and paying a lot of attention to me, and that the cream of the crop went to Westminster, the people who were doing big things in Alexandria. But he does not recall that the church was particularly involved in local outreach or social justice. Ransom and Para became close friends, and he helped open doors for Para to the black community. Along with Rabbi Jack Moline of Agudas Achim, they worked to bring together local leaders of faith traditions and denominations. In time, black leaders in Alexandria would seek Para's input on local issues. Para and former city manager Vola Lawson served as honorary co-chairs for the mayoral campaign of William Yule, who became Alexandria's first black mayor. 
In the mid-1980s, Para and the longtime senior pastor of Alfred Street Baptist Church, Rev. John Peterson, established a discussion group between members of the two congregations. Candace Rush, who along with her late husband Henry participated in these gatherings, recalls that, We went into this with the hope that regular discourse between our churches would bring about a more comfortable level of conversation. Over the course of about two years, two dozen people would meet monthly to discuss different topics. One of the underlying questions for Westminster members was the dilemma posed by MLK. Why is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning the most segregated hour in America? So often there were just cultural differences that came to light in the way the two congregations chose to worship, says Rush. The length of the service at black churches is an issue for whites. Paris says he never witnessed overt racism from any members during his tenure. They would have heard back from me in two seconds, and he actively called out racism when he saw it in the community, such as a hateful conversation that he overheard among police officers outside of the Everly Wheatley funeral home and promptly reported to the chief of police. In another incident, Para directly confronted police racism. An elderly Westminster member had a black male nursing assistant who worked on overnight shift in her home near Quaker Lane. Each night, while driving to his client's home, he would be stopped by police who would interrogate him about why he was in the neighborhood. The church member relayed this situation to Para, who arranged with the nursing assistant for Para and another church member to ride in the back seat of the aide's car one night on the way to the client's home. When they were stopped by police on Quaker Lane, Para took the officer's picture and told them that he was sending it to the Alexandria Gazette. The cops stopped harassing him. But George's wife, Nancy, and I received a number of threatening phone calls. As pastor, Para volunteered with the local organizations such as Alive and Senior Services of Alexandria that the church was supporting financially. Para eventually served on the Senior Service Board for 20 years, including two as board president. In 2014, Para said in an interview, When you want to get people involved, you just can't stand there and point to what needs doing. You have to take the paintbrush, climb the ladder and start painting. That's how you get people involved. You lead by doing. The connections that Henry and Candace Rush developed in Zaire and Kenya during visits there in the 1980s and 1990s would lay the groundwork for one of Westminster's most enduring legacies and provide the motivation for an unprecedented commitment of mission spending by the congregation, United Orphanage and Academy in Moyes Bridge, Kenya. The orphanage was founded in 2001 under the Westminster leadership of Reverend Stuart Broberg to provide a peaceful and safe home for children from various ethnic groups who were in conflict with one another. Westminster has funded the construction of dormitories, toilet facilities, a dining hall, kitchen, office, and storage space, dug a well, provided for facility upgrades to enable connection to the electric grid and purchased a 14-passenger van, all with budgeted funds combined with contributions from individual members of the congregation and other churches. Total enrollment at the academy is almost 150 students, including approximately 40 scholarship students from the surrounding area whose educations are made possible with funding from Westminster and other churches in the U.S. Of the 150 students, about 55, ranging in age from 4 to 18, live at the orphanage, and another 6 attend college elsewhere. Westminster Resources also provide support for those children who continue past secondary school to college or technical school. 
In 2011, Westminster instituted the Westminster Community Grant Program to support local organizations serving the needs of our local community in the areas of children, hunger, education, shelter, and self-sufficiency. These grants, which are in addition to annual congregational support to a number of worthy charities, allow organizations to respond quickly to special needs that can't be covered by their regular operating budgets. As of 2022, more than $230,000 has been distributed to dozens of organizations. When Rev. Whitney Fauntleroy was called to Westminster from North Carolina in 2017 as Associate Pastor for Youth and Young Adults, she was the first person of color to serve on the pastoral staff at Westminster. Rev. Angeline Taylor became the second in 2018. Fauntleroy's connection with the youth and their families and her poetically powerful and honest preaching style were quickly admired and embraced by the congregation and staff. Like Johnson a half-century earlier, Fauntleroy has challenged the congregation to reject our society's racial status quo, a status quo that has painfully morphed over the decades into systems that continue to perpetuate inequality in many facets of life for people of color. In 2020, in the midst of a pandemic lockdown that profoundly affected her ministry to the church's youth and amid heightened national awareness of racial issues after the murder of George Floyd, Fauntleroy was asked by the youth and their families to preach on July 5th, a Sunday when another pastor had been scheduled to preach. I did not want to be here. I am here because of the youth. The high school youth of this church have inspired me in ways and days when joy is hard to find. A few of our youth told me they wanted to hear from me. I didn't want to speak. And then a parent of three, two of them youth, explained to me why they thought the church needed to hear from me. I didn't want to speak. But then I thought about the people I've grown to love during the sleepless nights on church floors, both upstairs and abroad. And I decided to speak. So here I am and here we are. I didn't want to be here today, but there are some youth who I've been in conversation with who asked important questions and seek even better answers. I'm here because they are here, and they are in the streets crying for justice, wanting us to be better. I am here because of the youth of Westminster, and I am here because of the youth of University United Methodist Church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, a church just a stone's throw away from the place where the statue of Silent Sam once stood tall. And when I was blessed to walk alongside those youth, I did not have the courage to stand in my melanin-soaked God-given gifts and speak about the pain of racism when I had their hearts, their minds, and their ears. I wanted to talk to them desperately when my soul ached after the verdict in the killing of Trayvon Martin and the subsequent case. I wanted to teach them how to lament with those who suffer because their bodies are black. But I was scared. I no longer am scared. I owe it to those youth, to these youth and the bruised bodies of my ancestors to not be scared and to speak up. It is no doubt one of the greatest honors of my time here to be able to lead worship with not the future, but the now, the youth who asked me, could they lead worship? And so I share the mic even when I have so much to say. I share it not with the future, but with the now, because we are here. They are here. I am here. On this Independence Day weekend, Whitney chose to preach and teach on this passage from Paul's letter to the Romans. I know that good doesn't live in me, that is, in my body. The desire to do good is inside of me, but I can't do it. I don't do the good that I want to do, 
But I do the evil that I don't want to do. But if I do the very thing that I don't want to do, then I'm not the one doing it anymore. Instead, it is sin that lives in me that is doing it. I would imagine that you have read the words systemic or structural racism or white privilege or something similar a lot over the last few weeks. Maybe those words and concepts made you feel uncomfortable. Uh, I hope they do. Scaffolds of sin, be they the Constitution or a college or a corporation, should make us squirm. Get used to what makes you feel uncomfortable during this peculiarly painful American summer. I saw this poem by Naira Wahid that I want to share. I think one of the most pathological things I've ever seen is stabbing someone and telling them their pain over being stabbed is making you sad. Signed, White Guilt. With what seems like white America's wholesale awakening to sins of this soil from the New York islands to the Gulf Stream waters, bubbling up in CNN scrolls, think pieces and syllabi getting passed around on the internet, some of you may be asking, what can I do? What can we, that's you as white people, do? Good question. Keep asking it. Keep being uncomfortable and finding things that make you squirm enough. Squirm enough to be angry to want better. You can want to do better, and you can even believe you are doing better. You are watching your language, or reading books, amplifying new and different voices, maybe even sitting with all this in a new way that tears at your very soul. But all of that, while valuable in a sense, is also of no value. We can't help but do what we don't want to do. Nobody's perfect. I find the Apostle Paul and his writings difficult for a variety of reasons, namely that Paul is a person of extremes. There was only black and white. There was never any gray. He violently persecuted Christians and then goes on a world apology and apologetics tour to save souls. Paul, our problematic persecutor turned preacher, going through Asia Minor, saying wild stuff about women and slaves and circumcision and contradicting himself all along the way. However, today, in these verses in Romans, I have a little, shocker, gulp, sympathy for Paul. Paul admits that he is trash, even as he went from the extremes of violently persecuting Christians to falling in love with Jesus and fervently sharing the gospel, he is captive to sin. Even when Paul's ultimate desire is to enjoy God always, he fails. We fail. I can't help but do what I don't want to do. Paul can't help but do what he doesn't want to do. We can't help but do what we don't want to do. Nobody's perfect. We are born sinners. Um, newsflash, it is really, really hard to be a Christian. Get out while you can. This weekend, as we celebrate this country's first steps into independence, what is true freedom? I'm not talking about freedom earned from victories in battle or elevated language, rhetoric, and ideals of government documents. I'm talking about the ultimate freedom for those of us who try as hard as it may be to follow Christ. What is freedom in Christ, and what does it cost? The good news that Paul reminds us of in these words in Romans is that when we get to the very heart of our humanity, we cannot help but be humbled by God's divinity. Our being human, though depraved, desolate, and dejected as we may be, and can't seem to not be, 
only means that God in the person of Jesus Christ knows this depravity, desolation, and dejection. When he called out for his mother as he died at the hands of the state, when he couldn't breathe as the temple was torn, when blood and water flowed from his side as he hung limp on that lynching tree we call the cross, that Jesus Christ knows all too well what it is to be human, to suffer. But also in him, in Christ, the sight of Calvary's mountain became not the haunted story of his end or ours, but the beginning of resurrected hope, of the miracle of God's divinity, to scream out, Victory is mine! Victory is mine! I told Satan, Get thee behind! Victory is mine today! In the cries of that baby in the scent of the hay in Bethlehem, and the cries of God on the cross, we can proclaim this ridiculous hope of resurrection that freedom is coming, freedom is coming, freedom is coming, yes, I know. Our humanity proves the need for God, God's grace, God's spirit, God's peace. Freedom is not only in the wondrous cross, but in the wonders of creation that God in her wisdom called good and called us into her bosom promising not to let us go even when we have strayed. Freedom is in Golgotha, yes, but is also in the morning fish fry by the shore with loved ones during resurrected mornings. Freedom is not just the bloody Savior, but the one who calls us beloved. Freedom is not just in the wilderness of exile, but in the manna that falls daily. Freedom in Jesus Christ, the wounded healer, who defeats the power that seems undefeatable, the power of sin. And what does this freedom cost you? Well, it is not free. It is not a resignation that we can just be silent and complicit to the forces of sin, but that we seek the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, even when we don't want to, and even when we know we aren't able to, and even when we fail miserably. Freedom costs us the chipping away at systems and structures. It costs us trying when it doesn't make sense. It costs us the price of looking foolish, foolish enough to act like the work of Jesus means something not just for you, but for me, not just for the church or even just for Christians, but for the world. Freedom costs your feet that march to the beat of the kingdom dance parties, feet that don't become beautiful because they are never touched, but because they are trampled in the dirt of depravity, only to have been made beautiful by the calluses of what can seem like the futility of working for a future not yet here. Freedom costs us dying daily and picking up heavy crosses even as we lay our burdens down. Freedom costs us a mighty sacrifice, even when we might not live to see our return on investment. Freedom in Christ is a mighty conundrum, but it is here for you, for Paul, for me, for us. I cannot help but do what I do not want to do. Nobody's perfect, but keep trying. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The year 2022 would turn out to be Fauntleroy's honest horribilis. Earlier that year, Fauntleroy had received a grant from the Lilly Endowment in conjunction with the Foundations of Christian Leadership Program at Duke Divinity School to involve Westminster youth in leading the congregation to think about racial and ethnic equity from a theological perspective. But those plans were thwarted in September when life-saving surgery to remove a tumor from the top of her spine left her paralyzed in both legs and partially paralyzed in one arm. 
after long hospital stays and thousands of hours of physical therapy. Through sheer determination and perseverance and perhaps divine intervention, she progressed from wheelchair to walker to cane to walking unassisted. The Westminster community responded with meals, companionship, transportation, financial assistance, prayers, and love. Even though she is currently on medical leave, she is still ministering to her flock and beyond. Hello, this is Melinda Wilcox. You've heard stirring messages delivered from the pulpit by a young white pastor during the turbulent 1950s and by a young black pastor following the murder of George Floyd. You've learned about compromises crafted with other city officials to extend equal opportunities to black students and examples of leadership that motivate others to act. Westminster Presbyterian Church and its congregation have, in some cases but not always, responded to the struggle for civil rights over the years. The journey toward racial justice is far from over. There is much work to do, both as a congregation and as individual members. The content of the next chapter in that journey is taking shape now. As Martin Luther King Jr. stated in a speech delivered in Washington, D.C. on February 6, 1968, there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but he must take it because conscience tells him it is right. Acknowledgements. As the member of the Therefore Project Committee with the longest tenure at Westminster, I was the logical person to investigate and document the church's history as it relates to the civil rights movement. I began this work with low expectations of how much useful information that I would be able to unearth and with trepidation about how the church had conducted itself during the early and middle decades of the last century. What unfolded was a rich and fascinating journey that was enormously gratifying, and I feel privileged to have been the somebody whom Dr. Cliff Johnson in 1958 predicted will go back and write what was done in this community in this conflict. Along the way, I benefited greatly from many individuals who took time to answer questions, dig up information, share remembrances, and check my facts. Those include Jane Bordeaux, Rosalind Bovee, Winky Campbell, Don Dahman, Becky Davies, Ellen Hamilton, Kathy Hunter, Cliff Johnson Jr., Samuel Johnson, Jack Moline, Jan Moody of the National Capitol Presbytery, Dr. Kristen Moon of the University of Mary Washington, Charlene Peacock of the Presbyterian Historical Society, Dr. George Para, Reverend Dr. Elbert Ransom, Jim Roberts, Candace Rush, Pam Walkup, Sarah Yancey, and the staff of the Local History Special Collections Department at Alexandria Barrett Library. I'm deeply indebted to Connie, Jane, and Rusty Ring for their contributions. Nancy Hall Barons, Donald Gordon, Reverend Dr. Larry Hayward, Ann Ledyard, Jim Meiskins, and David Wilcox provided helpful comments on earlier drafts. And lastly, 
a shout out to all of the former and current Westminster members who over the years have maintained our church archives. Without their careful and unsung efforts, this project would not have been possible.